great to see you, Purpose Church, today. We're continuing our summer series, Dear Church, uh, from the book of Revelation. And Pastor Eric did just a phenomenal job uh, last Sunday dealing with chapter 17 and 18. And you know, God has really used Eric this summer, even outside of his wonderful preaching here on Sunday mornings. Do you know that over the past two months, in addition to his preaching here at our church, he spoke 31 times uh, to 1,400 different people, saw 200 decisions for Christ, and saw 20 people follow Jesus in baptism. And so uh, God has just used him in a great, great way here within our own church as uh, a part of our preaching team uh, on Sunday mornings, but also um, different places all around uh, California and the country. Now, so far, Eric and I have split the Revelation series 50-50. Uh, that is, uh, he's covered nine chapters of Revelation, and I've covered nine chapters of the book of Revelation. So, so far, we're 50-50, nine chapters and nine chapters. But now, I get to cover these wonderful final four chapters of the book of Revelation, final four chapters of the Bible. Uh, I get to do it over the next two weeks. Uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, uh, because I'm the senior pastor and I get what I want. <laughs> it reminds me of a story uh, where a guy comes into the church office and the receptionist is there, and he uh, comes into the church office and says to the receptionist, is the head hog in? And the receptionist goes, excuse me? And he goes, is the head hog in? And she goes, excuse me. He goes, is the head hog in? Um, and she said, we do not uh, refer to our pastor uh, as, the, as the head hog. And, and he goes, well, I have a million dollars that I want to give to the church. And she goes, oh, oh, I see. Well, as a matter of fact, here comes the big pig right now. Well, the big pig called dibs on the final four chapters of Revelation because they are some of the greatest and most encouraging in all of the Bible. Actually, Eric is out of town the next two weeks, so I want you to know I'm not just throwing my weight around as the big pig. But I love these final uh, chapters of not just Revelation, but of the entire Bible because they tell us how it all ends. They tell us how this story that we're living right now, uh, this life, uh, they tell us how does it all end. You know, I hate the tension of not knowing how something is going to end. I just, <coughs> that just drives me crazy of, of watching something and not knowing how it's going to end, whether it's the movie or TV shows, but especially when it has to do with my life or your life, or eternity. Now, with movies or TV shows, I can usually handle the tension of not knowing what's going to happen uh, with one big exception. With just one exception, I can handle it. And for revealing to you this, what I'm about to reveal, I'm going to have to hand in my man card. It's actually just my California ID, but it, it looks like a man card. So I'm going to have to turn in my man card 
when I reveal this to you. The one TV show where I can't handle the tension, drives me crazy, of not knowing how it's going to turn out is Little House on the Prairie. I'm totally, totally serious. Totally serious. I mean, when the Ingalls face uh, bankruptcy because the seed corn hasn't gotten there from Minneapolis, or when a typhus epidemic uh, ravages their town, I literally lose my mind. I mean, I've been known to burst into tears at the end of a Little House on the Prairie episode because it all turns out to be okay. Now, here's something that might help me to get my man card uh, back once again. I have the same problem whenever the Boston Celtics face the Lakers in the NBA Finals. I, I can't take the pressure. I can't even watch the games. I have to go out for, check the score, go out for a half an hour walk, come back and check the score uh, once again. So I have the same problem with the Lakers and Celtics in the NBA Finals. So maybe that will get me my man card back uh, again after admitting that about Little House on the Prairie. Our son Noah wanted our family to watch a TV series where aliens from space take over the earth. I think it was called Aliens Attack the Little House on the Prairie. Now, I didn't want to waste our time on five seasons and 50 episodes, uh, so I looked at the reviews and I stuck a peek at the end, trying not to see any spoilers. And here's what it said about this series that we were going to devote a lot of nights of our life uh, two. It says it has a predictable but satisfying conclusion. It said about this, seer, this series, it has a predictable but satisfying conclusion. I said, I'm all in. I don't want to waste all these seasons and get to the end, and it's, uh, it's just a bad ending. I will watch it. I will stick with it, even if it's predictable, as long as it has a satisfying conclusion. You know, uh, the book of Revelation has a predictable but a satisfying conclusion. The Bible has a predictable but a satisfying conclusion. Doris Ilioma, Iliojama uh, Basil writes, are you ready for the rapture of the church? Are you ready for heaven? Our Lord Jesus Christ now wants all Christians to get into a sense of urgency in our preparation for his second coming. Uh, Greta Zwan writes, as I journey through this life, may I focus, Lord, on you. My thoughts be ever heaven-bound. And Corey Ten Boom once said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. The title of today's study, based on Revelation chapters 19 and 20, is The King and His Kingdom. And let's skip down to chapter 19, verse 11. Christ will return. That is the satisfying conclusion, the end of the story that we are living right now. Christ will return. He will defeat the armies of the kings of the earth. Verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. Now this is not the great banquet that we're invited to in heaven where all of us celebrate around a great bank table, banquet table, uh, the banquet of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is a very different supper of God. It's a supper of judgment so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider off, uh, on his horse, on the horse, and his army. And so uh, he defeats, Christ returns, and defeats the armies of the kings of the earth. The Bible goes on to say, Revelation goes on to say, he will defeat the beast and the false prophet. Uh, continuing now with verse 20. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And then finally, uh, Satan is defeated. Moving down to chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. Uh, verse 2. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Verse 3. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay, what is going on here? Uh, now we come to chapter 20 in the book of Revelation and the issue of the millennium. Uh, this is considered the most debated chapter in all the book of Revelation, and some would say it's the most controversial or the most debated chapter in the entire Bible. Now first, let's look at the big picture, and, and I want you to know that so much of this study and series in Revelation, I know it's felt like drinking out of a fire hose, but don't get discouraged. Just, just hang on to a couple of parts of it that make sense and that you find encouraging to you in, in your Christian walk. I've been studying this for 50 years, about half a century, 
and is just now starting to come together. So don't, don't get discouraged. Here's the big idea of the book of Revelation. Uh, parts of it we're beginning to understand, parts of it we don't quite understand, but here's the big idea, and it's this. God wins in the end, and we win with him. That's the big message. That's really all you have to take away from it. God wins in the end, and we, in Christ, win with him. Now, I don't know about you, but this summer, what we're going through in our world uh, I have needed that assurance that God is going to win. And in Christ, we win with him. Now, here are the four charts that we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, and we talked about how uh, the, the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial position, that is that uh, Christians are raptured, taken out of this world prior to the seven-year tribulation, and then uh, after that tribulation period is a literal thousand years where Jesus literally reigns on planet earth. And we talked about some Christians believe that we go through the tribulation, post-tribulation. Uh, some believe that we will be raptured uh, before the, the tribulation. And then there's the amillennial position where the millennium is spiritualized. It is not a literal uh, millennium, thousand year reign of Christ literally reigning on earth, but spiritually uh, he reigns. Uh, through followers of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ within us, spiritually he reigns as Christians spread his message around the world. And then there's post-millennialism, which believes he comes uh, after the millennium is ushered in through the preaching of, of the gospel. So these are the four uh, positions that we talked about. And the big debate among Bible scholars is, is the millennium that we encounter today in chapter 20 of Revelation, is it symbolic? Is it spiritualized? Is it simply Christ in us, in the church, in Christ's followers? Or will there someday in the future be a literal thousand years when Christ reigns on planet Earth? That, that's, the big, that's the big debate. And the first two positions are literal millennium, and the last two positions, number three and four here, uh, they are spiritual or symbolic uh, millennium. Now the word millennium is from two Latin words. Uh, first of all, mile, which means thousand, and annum, which means year, so a thousand years. Now these first two uh, views here, uh, this first one particularly, pre-tribulation, pre-millennialism, uh, this is a, a literal uh, millennium. That is uh, the most popular position among American Christians. So among American Christians, these are the two most popular views having to do with a literal future millennium of reign of Christ. Now the last two views, uh, they are symbolic. And most worldwide Christians and most Christians throughout history have been amillennial. So most American Bible-believing Christians are a literal millennium. Most Christians through history and most Christians around the world uh, have a more of a symbolic or spiritualized millennium. And so you have your four views, um, uh, premillennial, uh, amillennial, postmillennial, and then there's the very popular view, panmillennial. It will all pan out in the end. Please give me at least a courtesy laugh. That's one of my favorite jokes 
that there's premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial. It will all pan out in the end. How many of you, right where you're watching in your living room or at your computer, uh, would, would raise your hand to say, maybe that's the best position of all. When Revelation gets really confusing, just say, well, I'm a panmillennialist. Somehow, it's all going to pan out in the end. Now, what is the meaning of the thousand years? That's our big question today. And then when do these events occur? When do they take place? So let's just look to it, the two most popular views, the most popular worldwide amillennial approach, and then the most popular among American Christianity, which is a premillennial. Okay, first of all, the amillennial uh, approach uh, goes uh, like this. First of all, the binding of Satan represents the victory of Christ over the powers of darkness. Satan being bound is when Christ had victory over the powers of darkness accomplished at the cross. Okay, at the cross. That's when Satan uh, was bound. Um, the next one uh, here. The thousand years is symbolic of a, a symbolic, not literal, but symbolic of a long indeterminate period. We don't know how long it's going to be between Christ's first coming and his second coming, corresponding to the age of the church, which is uh, right, right now. Uh, the next one, Satan will be loose briefly at the end of the millennium to wreak havoc and to persecute the church in the end of the present age. And then the fire coming from heaven and consuming the wicked is symbolic of Christ's uh, second coming. And then a general resurrection and judgment of the evil and the good will occur at Christ's coming, followed by the creation of new heavens and a new earth that we'll talk about uh, next Sunday. So that's the amillennial approach that most people in history and most people in the world today follow. But then uh, the one that's most popular among American Christians is the premillennial approach. The binding of Satan is yet future. It will take place when Christ returns. The thousand years is a literal period during which Christ will reign on earth from Jerusalem with his people. The loosing of Satan will bring the millennium to its climax, to its end, followed by the resurrection and judgment of the wicked at the great white throne. The new heavens and the new earth will be created after the millennium, that is a thousand years after Christ's second coming. Now, if there is a literal millennium, what is the reason for it? I mean, we have to admit, the amillennial position is more simple. It's just simply uh, Christ comes back. We, uh, he comes the first time uh, to save us. We preach that message until he comes back the second time to establish his eternal kingdom in heaven and, and the final judgment. It, it just, it's, it's simpler. Um, it, it's more straightforward. And so if there's a literal millennium, what's the point of this thousand years of Jesus literally reigning on planet Earth. Uh, what, what is the reason for that? Here it is. It is to demonstrate for all of eternity the rebelliousness in the hearts of those who reject Christ. Let me repeat that. It is to demonstrate for all of eternity the rebelliousness in the heart of those that reject Christ. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go there. And the millennium will demonstrate that finally uh, for all of eternity. 
Uh, the main excuse that people use to reject God today is the evil and the injustice in the world. Most common complaint and, and why people say, oh yeah, I could, I could never follow a God that allows this kind of injustice and evil within the world. It's the most common one. Uh, or they might say at the judgment that Satan made them do it. Or people might say that they didn't, they didn't know enough. They didn't have enough information uh, to make a decision for Christ. But the millennium is going to be a thousand-year period where Jesus reigns on the earth. So there is no evil. There is no injustice. Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive anyone. Then at the end of the millennium, Satan is released and people still follow him and rebel against Jesus. So it shows for all of eternity that people choose their eternal destination. Your heart, your heart makes a choice regardless of your environment. It is not your environment that makes your choice for you. Your heart makes that choice. Uh, Kimberly, Kimberly gave me a hilarious book recently uh, called Subpar Parks. Uh, America's most extraordinary national parks and their least impressed visitors. Um, these are bad Yelp reviews for some of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. And I want to share with you um, uh, some, uh, some of, of my favorites. Uh, here's the first one here. We'll put it up there. Uh, the Gates of the Arctic National Park in Alaska. One Yelp reviewer, one visitor to the park said, mountains not nearly tall enough. <laughs> okay, uh, here, here's the next one. Let's put the next one up there. Uh, Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. Uh, somebody wrote, it's just something to look at and then to leave. <laughs> totally unimpressed. Uh, let's go to the next one here. Death Valley National Park here in California. Ugliest place I've ever seen. Let's go to the next one. Uh, in Hawaii, the Hawaii Volcano National Park. One person wrote, didn't even get to touch the lava. Their complaint was nobody ever let them touch the lava. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Right in our own backyard, Joshua Tree National Park. The only thing to do here is walk around the desert. Um, here, here's another one. Olympic National Park in the state of Washington. No wow factor. <laughs> no wow factor. All right. Um, uh, let's, let's go on to the next one. Redwoods National Park, again, uh, here in California. Trees and coasts are basically it. Only thing you see when you go to the Redwoods National Park, trees and coasts, that's basically all that it is. Uh, here's another one here in California, Yosemite National Park. Yosemite Falls. Falls were not that fantastic. Here's another complaint somebody else had. Trees block the view and there are too many gray rocks. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. Arches National Park in, in Utah looks nothing like the license plate. <laughs> Okay, we're coming down the home stretch now. Carlsbad Caverns, poorly lit and just plain. And then the next one, 
Glacier, Glacier National Park in Montana, very near Purpose Church Kalispell that uh, is a part of our church family. It was, Glacier Park was too cold for me. Didn't expect it to be so cold at Glacier National Park. Then the greatest park of them all, Yellowstone National Park, I've seen better. And then finally, uh, Grand Canyon National Park, a whole a very, very large hall. So here will be some of the Yelp reviews during the millennium. Jesus is just too kind. Um, Jesus is too fair and too just the way he reigns over the world. You know, my main complaint is there's just too much blessing and prosperity in which Jesus runs everything on planet Earth. And this passage that we're looking at today says some people will be open to Satan leading them, even in the millennium, even under this um, almost perfect society. Uh, won't be sinless. People will still be able to sin. But Jesus will be running the show. And so in this fantastic uh, government, uh, my dad always used to say, the best form of government would be a benevolent dictatorship with a perfect dictator. That, that really would be the best form of government is, is the dictatorship, but with a wonderful dictator, with a perfect dictator. Well, that's what the millennium will be. It will be a, a beneficial a, a dictatorship with Jesus as our benefactor, as our perfect leader. And yet even then, some people are going to be open to Satan leading them in one final rebellion against God. Uh, now, at the beginning of the millennium, Christ followers will reign along with Christ. Uh, verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Uh, they came to life after their execution during the tribulation. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Um, then, however, at the end of this wonderful uh, heaven on earth, Jesus as the uh, benefactor, the beneficial uh, dictator uh, of that and, and government of that rule over planet Earth, at the end of those thousand years, Satan is going to lead a final revolt. When the thousand years are over, it says in verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. Now, you would think after a thousand years of the reign of Jesus on earth, Nobody will buy into his deceptions, and yet people will. 
uh, it's interesting, we haven't been using a lot of specific uh, names and saying that represents something in the future, but with Gog and Magog, I've always found it fascinating because Bible scholars say these are nations that will come from due north. And, and that's always been the location of these two places in, in biblical history, in the book of Ezekiel, and now here in Revelation. Uh, they, they come from due north against Jerusalem. And I'm, I'm not saying exactly what that will mean, but I've always found it fascinating. If you go and uh, test me on this, get a globe, go around your house, find a globe, put your finger on Jerusalem, and then go due north from Jerusalem, and your finger will be right on Moscow in Russia. Now, I'm not saying what that may or may not mean, but I have always found that incredibly fascinating whenever the scriptures talk about nations from the north coming down uh, and attacking Israel. It's just a fascinating geographical detail about Gog and Magog. And we'll gather them for battle. In number, they are like uh, the sand of, on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then Revelation says, the book of life is going to be opened. Um, verses 11 through 15. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. These are books that are filled with every person that's ever lived and what they did. The good things they did and the bad things they did. Another book, however, was opened, which is the book of life. There are these books, plural, which have everything that any person that's ever lived has ever done, good and bad. And then there's another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And you can never do enough good to earn your salvation. The, the, the good will never outweigh the bad. Most people live that way, just hoping that in those books where everything's written down, the good will outweigh the bad. For by grace are you saved, uh, through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, it, it, it's not a matter of our works. Nobody can be saved. Nobody can enter into heaven because of the amount of good that they've done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done, and everybody falls short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the perfect standards of God. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Now, if it were only those books, plural, that had everything we had ever done in it, nobody would be saved. Nobody could enter into heaven. But there is a book separate from these books. And here it is in verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And this verse right here, 
leads us to the most important question you'll ever consider in life. And that question is this. Is your name written in the book of life? Do you know without a doubt that your name is written in the book of life? And if you're not sure, would you like to be sure? I'd like to give you a chance to do that uh, right now. It's as simple as three words. Sorry, thanks, and please. First, you say to God, oh God, I'm sorry for when those books of my life with everything I've done, there will be so many things in there that hurt other people. So many ways I've failed to love others. So many things will be in there that I that uh, I have fallen short of your perfect standards. Oh God, I'm sorry. But thank you because of Jesus. Revelation calls Jesus the lamb who was slain. Thank you that because Jesus died on the cross, I can have my name written in that book. Please, will you write my name based on what Jesus did for me by dying on the cross and rising from the grave? Please write my name in your book of life. Would you pray right now with me and ask him to do that? Oh God, pray with me, would you? I'm sorry. Just say that word right now, sorry. I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. I feel sorry for the good that I have not done. When those books are open, there's not nearly as much good in it as should be in it. And there's way too much that's, that's not good, that's wrong. I'm sorry. But thank you that because of Jesus, I can have my name written in your book of life. And now please, God, because of Christ, because I'm trusting not in my good works or my good deeds, I am, I am trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Please, God, would you write my name in your book? And I pray this, and you pray this with me. We pray this together in Jesus' name. And all of you that agree with me, sitting at your computer, sitting in your living room, wherever you might be, if you agree with that prayer, would you say with me out loud, wherever you are, amen and amen.